todo el mundo. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. Today, I have a co host, Graydon Schlichter author of the short story, She's a Killer Dean, which appears in volume two of the book series, which is called Do You Fear Like We Do, the 70s edition. Hello, Graydon. Hi, Stacy. Thanks for letting me join you today. Oh, it's good to have you here. Um, you and I go back a few years, uh, having met the first time in your other life as an audiobook narrator. Uh, you read, yes, my book, City of Devils, a uh, short story collection, and you are also the voice of the sexy British vampire rock star Liam Archer, who's in my Immortal Confessions collection. Um, but it's only recently that I learned what a great writer you are, so I'm really happy to have your story in Rock and Roll Nightmares, the fiction series. So uh, tell our listeners a little bit about how you came up with the title and premise of your story. Sure, I'm happy to. But first, I have to say thank you for those very kind words. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're all true. All righty. Well, what's funny is when I uh, first started thinking about your collection and the premise of it and how I wanted to approach it, literally the first thing I did was start taking song titles from various decades and just reworking them, refashioning them into titles for stories that would be appropriate in the collection. Uh, so I, I led with, I guess, log lines or slug lines almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I came up with a few that seemed to have some legs uh, that I that I explored a little bit, uh, a little bit more deeply. And I sent them off to you just to see if I was on the right track. And as I recall, you were interested in everything that I came up with at the time, <laughs> yeah. uh, which was very encouraging. Um, but of course, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. And so we got one story out of that. And it, it was, uh, you know, she's a killer, Dean, uh, which is, you know, playing on Killer Queen a little bit. The, the story, what's interesting about it is it evolved a little bit. I had a very clear idea of what the story was, and I sat down to write it. Uh, and for those of you who haven't listened to uh, the audiobook yet or read the book, Boy, you can you can sure see my bias, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
for those of you who have not yet experienced the story, um, it centers around a small uh, band that's sort of up and coming. They're talented, but they haven't quite broken through yet. And things that happened to them over the course of an evening at one of their gigs. Uh, and that didn't, that was not actually the original premise. The original oh. premise was, uh, was actually going to follow them over the course of the decade as they moved from one music genre to another in the way some bands did in the time, sort of evolved starting out uh, in the early 60s uh, with sort of a, a smaller, uh, almost a hangover sound from the, from the 50s, the small group, and then adding musicians and evolving through uh, some of the, the harder elements and some of the, the more psychedelic elements that we saw Sorry, from the 60s into the 70s. Right. Uh, and uh, what happened was I sat down and started writing. And before I knew it, I had way too many words uh, for what, what had started out life as just the introduction of the story. And so then I, I stopped and thought about it for a few minutes. And I, I thought, how do I recontextualize the same story that I want to tell, but um, in a tighter, more focused time frame? And that was the first big pivot. And then the second big pivot that came was realizing that some of the characters that I'd written into the story actually served different purposes than I had originally conceived for them. Hmm. Uh, and so by the time, I think by the time you, you, you saw a draft of the story, all of this had sort of evolved in the background. Uh, and so what you got was where I arrived, but the journey there uh, was not what I expected <laughs> when <laughs> I sat like down. like you were possessed by the, the ghosts of rock and roll, huh? A little bit. And it's, it's funny because uh, I usually give myself a little bit of flexibility uh, that a story might, might change in some, some subtle ways. Uh, I wrote one a few years ago that, um, that started out life uh, with a bit of a, of a harder horror edge, uh, a little bit more ghostly, a little bit more supernatural. And then by the time I got to the end of the story, I realized, oh, this is what I've written here is, is far more psychological. And the, the, the supernatural elements, if you want to call them that, are more implied than expressed. Mm. Or another story uh, that I sat down to write and I thought, oh, this will be simple. It'll be a handful of scenes. It'll be 1,500 words out and done. And as I'm going, I, I have ideas for additional scenes to flesh out the story, to give some of the characters a little bit more heft. And it essentially doubled in length by the time I got to the end of it. Half of that content uh, appearing all, uh, uh, sui generis, sui sponte. Uh, my Latin's a little rusty, uh, but coming out of nowhere. <laughs> Mine is non-existent, so uh, what was that? <laughs> uh, just pieces of the story that pop up uh -huh. uh, as I'm going, and you know what started out life as one line of of context in a scene became a scene unto itself, uh, and so that story wound up, as I said, just about doubling in length. So. Writing is a journey for me, which uh, I mean, I, I guess it is for everybody, but I really enjoy those discoveries that I wasn't expecting, uh, even though sometimes they can, uh, they can build out the process a little bit. And what you thought was an afternoon's writing or a day's writing might become a couple days writing. But if the, if the end product is 
closer to what you want or what you discover you really wanted all along, so much the better. <laughs> yeah, and you had the sort of the added um, wrench of having to put some comedy into the story because rock and roll nightmares is horror, comedy, and music all kind of melded together. It it absolutely is, and honestly, that that was really fun for me. I. I don't think I had this thought consciously when I was writing, but certainly on reflection, there there is a little bit of uh, almost a Scooby-Doo element to the way my story <laughs> yes, plays out. Yes, I love that. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the, the Rock and Roll Nightmares fans do get a bonus with the 70s edition because not only do you write one of the stories, but you and your um, partner also narrate that book for the Audible edition, as we alluded to a bit earlier, and you guys go under the pseudonyms of Vincent Lee Grayson and Lillian Eves. Um, yeah, now it, it's in that particular collection, um, you two not only narrate your own stories, but you also get to take on a ton of characters and tackle different accents and sort of inhabit the twisted minds of multiple authors. So um, can you tell us a little bit about what is the difference between doing something like that and reading a single author novel? Uh, sure, I can, I can jump right into that. Although I'll start with what is similar. Um, which is whether it is a full length novel or a short story, the first piece of it is wrapping your head uh, and I guess your voice around the narrative voice or authorial tone of the work. Um, because you have to be true to that. Otherwise, anybody who is listening to the work will know hey, you didn't really connect with the material. You're saying the author's words, but you don't sound like the author intended them. So, and it, it creates this really unpleasant disconnect. So you have to, mm -hmm. you have to make that link first. What's interesting about uh, anthologies, and by the way, I love doing anthologies, is how much that voice can change from story to story, even if the author themselves uh, don't change, even if it's a collection for one person. City of Devils, uh, your book is a great example of this. Those stories are very diverse in tone, in how they approach their source material, uh, and in, in sort of gravitas. Some of them are very serious uh, pieces, and I'm thinking in particular of the, the novella that sits smack dab in the center. Um, and some of them are light and fluffy, uh, and some of them are fun but with an edge. And so when you're approaching an anthology, you really have to take each story as it comes. If every story sounds like it's being narrated in exactly the same way and approached in exactly the same way, you have probably missed an opportunity to let each of those stories shine in the ways that they are different. Right, right. I mean, you bring up um, City of Devils where you do inhabit many different characters, even though it's a single author collection, me. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you're a 12 year old boy and you know, you're an old man and you're a, 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 an actress who wants to win the Oscar. I mean, so many different things. Do you read through a book a couple of times before diving in or how do you, what's your approach to, to narrating a, an entire work like that? It has evolved a little bit over time. Uh, once upon a time, I was given the advice that you, you want to read through everything very thoroughly 
uh, and know every, every wrinkle and every twist so that you don't get an unpleasant surprise halfway through the book. Uh, the classic example of this is a, a colleague of mine once narrated a novel and halfway through or two thirds of the way through that book, uh, the author casually drops that the main character uh, speaks with a thick Irish brogue. Oh, <laughs> oh whoops. Which, yeah, that, that can be a bit of a challenge. And so my colleague had a fair bit of uh, re-recording to do in the moment. What I have found is that it is more valuable than reading the work cover to cover to start with is having a conversation with the author. Understanding from the author who the characters are and how they relate to one another, what the relationships are, what the dynamics are. And I always always uh, casually throw in the, if you have any particular notes about accents, dialects, uh, regionalisms, or anything like that, let's get those on the table uh, before we get started. Um, and I find that that is more valuable to me than, uh, re -re than reading everything cover to cover before I get started. Now, hmm. part of that is purely practical. Uh, authors are very excited to have their books turned into audiobooks, generally speaking. I don't think I've ever had a client who was sort of was, was milk, uh, milk toast or lukewarm on the idea. They, it, authors love having their, their works translated into audio. And so uh, they would rather answer those questions than have you take the time to read the book and then follow up with questions, which undoubtedly you're going to have anyway. Um, but the other thing is uh, I am a collaborator at heart. Uh, so the fact that I now narrate uh, essentially exclusively with a partner shouldn't surprise anybody, uh, especially me, because I'm a collaborator. And I really enjoy collaborating with, uh, with my author clients as well. How do you see this relationship? Or, you know, what if we, what if we tweak things in this direction? Or, you know, this yeah. character's uh, accent is not, is not uh, defined in the text, but she's kind of a villain. How about we make her that classic uh, film trope of uh, every villain speaks with a British accent? <laughs> <laughs> you know, these things work. Yeah, definitely. And you are, speaking of work, constantly working. You and Lillian um, have so many books uh, behind you and in the middle and coming up. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the other books that you have? Let's plug some other authors here. I'm not going to hog the spotlight entirely here. <laughs> oh, that is, that is super nice. Um, yeah, it is a great problem to have uh, about, oh, I don't know, 73 times a day, I think to myself, whew, all right, so those are the books that have recently been put through. These are the various things we're working on. Those are the things that are coming up in the queue until something else happens and then, you know, shuffle, reorganize and uh, recalibrate. So uh, just a couple of, of authors that we work with, a couple of books uh, that we are super excited about. Um, and I will, I will give little sort of like genre tags too, so that your listeners, uh, our listeners, can I say our listeners? You certainly can. <laughs> uh, so that our listeners get a sense of, well, maybe that's the one that I wanna, that I wanna lean towards, or ah, that, does it, that sounds interesting, but maybe not my speed. Um, so the, probably the, the first big work that the two of us put together uh, was uh, the Victorian Gothic collection for Chastity Bolin. Uh, Chastity is a 
multi-time uh, USA Today bestselling author, primarily in romance, uh, and the Victorian Gothic collection is a paranormal romance uh, set in the Victorian period. So you have uh, trains and telegraphs and uh, musty, spooky old castle and uh, a hero and a heroine who have never met. And upon meeting, there's a, there's a spark as there often is in these stories, but there are also a whole host of reasons why they can't truly be together. And you then get three short books, novellas almost, that uh, tell the story of the challenges that they face, both mortal and not so mortal, mm. uh, in, uh, in trying to come together. And that was, that was a really exciting first project for the two of us to really come together on and cut our teeth on. Uh, Chastity was very gracious uh, in her, her enjoyment of the work that we were doing. Many authors do not enjoy listening to their own work created to audio, despite the fact they're very excited about it uh, coming about uh, for a whole host of reasons. And so uh, anytime an author takes the time and is willing to, uh, to listen to what we've done, and not only that, but, but really enjoys it, uh, it's, it's a huge triumph. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, you're obviously pleasing the ultimate critic with the author there. Right. Uh, it, it, and these things are precious. Uh, the, you know, the author's words are precious to them, obviously. So I have to make sure we have to make sure that we do right by them. Um, at the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, you have uh, the trial series by Lizzie Ford, uh, which book one is, is currently available as we record. Uh, books two and three are waiting for audible stamp of approval. Uh, so hopefully we will see those soon. And this is a modern, almost an urban fantasy uh, romance with a twist. It's, uh, I think uh, the genre is reverse harem. And so okay, you've I've got, yeah. Yeah. So you've got, you've got Lillian who is voicing, and it's the series is first person. So as opposed to the Victorian Gothic collection, which is third person, although you get some of the characters in her thoughts, this series is first person uh, narrated by my partner. Uh, as she navigates a complicated supernatural issue in, in the modern world. Um, well, I want to just say thanks for being here today and for co-hosting. So why don't you do the honors and introduce our guest? Today's guest is Lou Rera, an author of supernatural crime stories and horror. And he's a lifelong musician with record production, studio work, and songwriting in his background. He's worked with Jeff Beccaro of Toto, Burton Cummings of The Guess Who, and many more. He's a perfect fit for the Rock and Roll Nightmares crew here. Welcome to the show, Lou. Hey, thanks, Graydon. Appreciate it. So it's nice to have you here, Lou. Um, I've been checking out your collection of short stories, Awake, and I have to say the cover just immediately caught my eye. It's kind of reminiscent of one of those tawdry detective hard-boiled crime novels of the 40s and 50s. Um, I just love that kind of artwork. So I'm curious to know, um, where did that image come from? Is, is it illustrative of one story in particular or does it kind of um, kind of capture the feel of the whole collection? Well, it, it actually is illustrative of, of one particular story. And um, the way this, this cover came about was um, Glenn Orbick, who worked for, did a lot of covers for Hard Case Crime Publishing, um, had done a couple for Stephen King. Uh, he did, um, Joyland and uh, the Colorado Kid. 
And I, I love the style because it goes back to the, like you just described from the 40s and 50s pinups and those tawdry magazines. And so I contacted Glenn uh, through email and much to my horror, um, his partner, uh, Laura Black Blackman got back to me and said that Glenn had died. He died oh, of cancer. Yeah. And um, he had worked for Hard Case for about 10 years. So I sent my apologies and you know I was a little bit mortified because I didn't really know that he had passed away. And, but she contacted me and said, look, you know, Glenn's got a, a collection. We'd be willing to license you a previously painted piece of work. And so I said, sure. So I went through his collection and I was stunned to find this one image. It's, it's actually called The Seduction of Innocence. And uh, it matched a story I was working on called Satan's Salon that comes out of this collection awake. So um, she licensed it to me and the publisher and, you know, I it made a spectacular cover because, you know, I hate to bring it down to the commercial level, but, you know, the very first thing people see when they're, when they're looking around for something is the cover of something or the packaging of something. So I thought this image was so striking, it would be a good image to start off with for, for my collection. It really is. Um, yeah, I think it's just kind of draws you right in and makes you wonder what's inside the book. Yeah, I, I was really pleased with that. And um, she was very gracious in, in working this all out for me. Well, Lou, given your diverse talents and experiences, I'm going to jump around a little bit. Uh, sure. And I wanted to ask you, when you first began composing music, what drew you to it? How did the jump to doing so professionally come about? And what changed about your approach when you, when you made that jump? Okay, I have to go back, way back to when I was a kid and every kid in the neighborhood, I mean, you know, once we're of that era, once the Beatles hit America, that was it. And so, <laughs> and, and, and the British invasion and all the bands that came with that. So we all went out and picked up our instruments from a pawn shop somewhere. And, you know, we took about, it went about the process of learning how to play. But fast forward into what you're talking about, and you know, I we realized quickly that if you were worth anything as a musician, it's one thing to do cover covers of other music, which we did plenty of, and we <laughs> learned a lot from that. But um, you had to write, so we started to write um, our own music, and then the bands, you know, they they fluctuated, and it wasn't until I I. I matched up with a, another writer uh, and musician, Bill Tarico, that we became a songwriting team for a decade, you know, and we worked on, on our music in recording demos and, and trying to perfect how we would, you know, break through because it's really tough. And um, yeah. so the, basically what happened was we would record music that we wrote and the way we would acid test this stuff is we would play some songs that we thought were really great and then we'd stick ours in the middle of it and then play some more songs and if ours held up somehow within those other songs we felt we were on the right track so to move into the professional side of it um we won a couple of things at the american song festival back in those days which attracted some attention from 
some producers and people that were interested in looking for music. And this didn't happen quickly. You know, it took a couple of years of working with the festival and those people. And then we tracked down some people in New York City. Uh, we tracked down uh, Jimmy Einer, who was the producer at the time of, of the Raspberries with Eric Carmen. And oh. uh, to get to where we were going, we had to land a deal. So we ended up landing a recording contract with a small label who eventually uh, sold our stuff to MCA Infinity. And um, we spent you know, six, eight months in LA cutting our album. And that's how we met um, everyone else. That's how we met Jeff Picaro and David Page of Toto and Burton Cummings. And in the same studio we were working in, uh, Linda Ronstadt was cutting some stuff. We went to another <laughs> studio to do some guitars. And wow. uh, Dan Wyman, who owned the studio Sound Arts, at the same time, he was working on uh, John Carpenter's soundtrack for uh, Halloween. So we were just amazed that if you immerse yourself in the studio environment out there, um, it was an incredible place to run into everybody. And then, you know, people would, everybody's so great and friendly in the sense that it's all about the music. So, you know, right. we hear something, you know, we say, well, could you give us a hand with this? Burton Cummings comes in and listens to a, a track we're working on. And he said, man, I can hear a really great tech piano in there. Do you mind if I lay one in? And we looked at each other and said, are you kidding? You know, so, <laughs> so, yeah, so it's, it kind of went like that. I mean, it, it was, it wasn't a fast thing, but it, it worked. And um, so we got to the point where the music we wrote was, you know, was good enough to get into a deal and uh, billboard picked one of our tunes as a up and coming single and all that stuff. So we were on the right track, but, like all stories of fairyland and dust and all that stuff, th things can fall apart quickly when all mm. the elements aren't there. So it's the reality of the business. You know, we weren't starry-eyed about it all. Um, one of the things we did was to learn about the business of music because we were dealing with entertainment attorneys. So it was great. It was a, a, a way to come through all this and, and make some progress. Let's listen to one of Lou's songs. The band is Flight, and the song is Send a Little Love My Way. Try, I feel you. 
So you mentioned John Carpenter, who, you know, my ears perked up when you said that, because I feel like he, he was um, a fairly underrated composer. Now, of course, he's been doing live shows that are sold out. You know, he sells out the Hollywood Bowl and everything with his son. So his music is more in the forefront now. But um, yeah, I'm kind of curious to know, like, in your opinion, why do you think horror and rock music go so well together? I, I think, you know, on, a, on the most basic level is they're both a visceral experience. Like, you know, music evokes emotions from people, whether it's anger or uh, wistfulness or frustration or just elation. It can be any of those things. But music has always done that. I mean, a lot of times people will say, well, do you, do you remember this song? And they can equate or remember something based on a piece of music at a time when something other than the music itself significantly happened in their lives. So I think writing's the same way as you, you get at people through an emotional tie to something that they've, they've experienced or think they're going to experience or would like to experience. So I think there's a, a real lock tie into all that stuff because it it goes to the emotional side of of everyone and just one more thing about that uh -huh. is i often in my stories i often use pieces of music or other pieces of pop culture uh to sort of weave into the story because i know that people will will be able to what do you call it a link themselves to that idea that, oh yeah, I remember that. And that's where I was when I did this or that. So 
I think music and horror lock into that kind of thing um, in a really good way. And it doesn't have to be one type of music. It can be anything. It could be ACDC or it can be the Beatles, you know, <laughs> All right? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, composition, performing musician, uh, author, obviously, not enough. Uh, so we're going to turn another page and talk a little bit about uh, your time in academia. Sure. Uh, I'm curious, what did you focus on in your in your time as a professor? Uh, and even more specifically than that, what was the most valuable lesson that you tried to impart to your students over the course of their time with you? Sure. Um, just before I went into um, my work as a professor at the SUNY system in New York, I, I had come from television and commercial production. So I had worked as an art director and as a producer of, of media content within those, within those fields. And um, I went into the, the teaching of this at, at the, um, in the media study level. So I would teach visual communication and I would teach film production courses, how to take a script and turn it into something that is you know, dynamic enough as a translation of that script. So, and I worked a lot with audio because a lot of times students work on a film project and audio becomes secondary, but it's actually just as important as the film itself. So mm -hmm. as a job, I focused on that stuff, you know, how to produce things, how to do Foley work, uh, digital Foley work, how to do sound effects and, and score music that is uh, dynamic enough and creative enough to match the film that a short film that the students would be working on. Um, and one last thing about that is, you know, it's such a competitive business and I tried to always treat it as such. So I treated the deadlines as if I was their client. And if they, if they didn't <laughs> deliver the deadline, they were fired through a grade, you know? Yep. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, I'm going to also, diverge here for a minute, um, back to sort of the rock and roll nightmares angle here. Um, I am aware that John Lennon was a huge influence on you. And of course, his murder marked one of the darkest days in music history. And that is covered in the rock and roll nightmares nonfiction edition, of course. But um, I'm kind of curious, like, what was, do you remember hearing the news? And what was it like when it actually happened in 1980? And also, I'm thinking John Lennon's last album, you know, was so melodic and hopeful and beautiful. And I feel like the impact of his loss may have actually changed the course of how music might have been in the 80s, which was so superficial pop, uh, you know, very, the 80s are kind of known for the dynasty era and the Dallas era, the kind of, um, you know, uh, wealth obsessed. Um, and I'm just kind of wondering what you think might have happened if John Lennon had survived. And also, if you could let us know, like, what that impact was like on the world at the time. Well, um, I, I first, I, I always thought John Lennon, and, and you know, I, I'm not the first person to say this, but he, he is a very cerebral writer and he, his, his lyricism was poetic and um, 
you know, really got to the emotional side of what people were thinking or what the world was thinking at a time. And, you know, you can go back to things that were more playful, like, um, you know, I'm the walrus where he's writing a little bit like Lewis Carroll mm. or some of the stuff he was doing, like E.E. E. Cummings and, and those kind of things. But, and then there were his more direct messages, but, you know, I just don't, I can't even begin to measure the loss of what he had brought to the world and all of us in his writing. And, you know, I just finished watching Peter Jackson's documentary and it was so revealing in terms of the, the creation of songs. Now, some people saying, well, it's too long, it's boring. But as a musician, you're watching the creative process. It's sort of amazing. It's like watching a Michelangelo birth something out of a piece of stone. You know, it, it, it's right. like that. So, um, but getting back to uh, Lennon's murder, um, I was actually with a friend, we were, we were jamming at his house and just playing anything that came to our heads and the television was on in the background but the sound was off and we saw a, a super come up I think it was Monday Night Football or something a super came up and it said Lennon was shot and then shortly after that um, when we turned the television on Lennon was murdered or was dead and uh, we were floored you know uh, it, it was sort of stunned by the by the impact of that news and if you remember the news at the time so was the rest of the world so we put our instruments down and we went to our favorite bar and we got slammed so uh it was a very sad time and i i know that this is going to sound really awful but i my grandfather died that same year and the impact of his death was less than the impact of Lenin because Lenin had become such a integral part of my life and my way of thinking. So yeah, it was something that I'll never forget. I'm sure anybody else who looks back on it won't either. Yeah, I was a, a teenager then, um, but I do remember the coverage on the news was just like they were um, covering the assassination of Kennedy or something. It was so um, pervasive and people were in shock. They were crying. I mean, it was just such a, an incredibly uh, tragic time in music history. And I had been listening at that time, you know, I was discovering um, John Lennon's solo stuff. And I do remember the song Mother, which still just hits me the way he sang that with such raw emotion and and sadness and he yes. you know I, I feel like yeah but, and of course we haven't even talked about imagine which is certainly an iconic song yeah and the, the tragedy of of him coming back out after those years of solitary uh introspection i think is just you know it's so ironic and we yeah. can only wonder what he would have given us had he lived and that's just a question that history diverged for us and we'll never know you know being just a little bit uh younger i was not cognizant of the world when that happened but i remember as i grew older wondering be before i knew anything about the beatles and their music or their or, or lennon's importance to the constellation of things just wondering how strange it was that a musician was assassinated because in my mind i always thought of that as a political uh, type action. And then, of course, 
in the fullness of time, you sort of figure these things out, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, it's it, it's interesting you use the word assassination because in essence, that's what it was. And that's how it was described in various you know, news outlets and stuff like that. And I think because he was such a world figure about, you know, trying for everyone to get together and have peace in the world um, and that Nixon was trying to put him on the FBI's list to get him deported out of the country. Um, I think, you know, I, I think that you're right. He, he was a, a figure that was assassinated, not just murdered. All righty, I wanted to pivot back to writing and this is a three-parter. So I'm actually gonna break it down. If uh, I'll give you the first part and then I'll follow up because I, sure. I, I'm really curious about the pieces of this. The first one, because I, I know a lot of writers, a lot of authors and everybody has their own process. Uh, when you sit down and start a book, which is the chicken and which is the egg? Uh, and what I mean is, do you decide what to write and then you write it or do you begin writing and sort of discover what the work is as you do the work? I, I kind of do both in, in, in the sense that I know what I want to write about, but I, I never really sit down and do the formal plotting of the story, whether it's a short story or, or the novel. And um, so with that, though, you know, I do start, start my stories or whatever I'm working on. And then it evolves because I, I might discover something as I'm writing a particular part of a story or a chapter that reveals itself to take me somewhere else. So it's nothing mystical or anything like that. It's just sort of like as you're plodding along and writing out, you know, various elements of a story, something occurs to you. Oh, yeah, this could be done that way instead of the original way I was thinking. So. Um, yeah, for me, no plotting, but I do have a good idea of what the story's about. Um, my first novel, Sign, was, you know, I, I know this sounds hokey kind of, but I actually dreamed the premise. And when I woke up, I wrote down the premise and then just, it took me, <laughs> I think it was five years to actually flesh that thing out, get it published and out there. So crazy amount of time. Wow, yeah. <laughs> but well worth it, I'm sure, in the end. It was, absolutely. Uh, and I completely understand that. Uh, once upon a time, I kept a notebook by my bedside so that when I dreamt something particularly great, I could scribble it down and then make use of it. And somewhere along the line, I lost the habit, which is a shame because there have been a few stories here and there that uh, may never be written because of it. <laughs> well, you know, what's really interesting about that is that if you didn't have that notebook there and you were telling yourself, well, when I wake up tomorrow morning, I'll write it. And there's no way that any of us remember what we dreamed about later, unless it was something so significant that we can actually sink our teeth into it. No, the notebook idea or any piece of paper around is, is a great way to keep an idea that you won't lose. Yep. <laughs> 100%. Um, so then, you have written in both the short, the very short, and then also the long mediums, short fiction, flash fiction, and novels. Uh, what do you particularly enjoy about each of those mediums? Or I guess put another way, uh, what provokes you to move from one to the other? Well, with flash, that's the extremely short uh, genre, 
it was sort of a natural segue for me to go from writing a three minute song to a piece of flash fiction, which might be 600 words to a thousand words mm. or less and um, have a complete idea in there fleshed out and um, give people uh, a, a bit of a, a story without all the backstory and a, the character development. It just bang, you get to the idea immediately and it either works or it doesn't. Um, I, you know, everyone always uses the, the, the Hemingway example of the shortest piece of uh, flash uh, that he wrote on a challenge. It's, uh, it goes like this, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. And uh, mm. I, I always thought, wow, that is really powerful because it can mean something very ominous or something, you know, that is nothing. You know, the baby grew out of them before they had a chance, you know, so... Yep. Yeah. Um, short stories, on the other hand, um, which is what I have in this collection in Awake, um, Tales of Terror, those are, are a little bit nicer in the sense that you can flesh things out more. You know, you're writing five to eight thousand words and you're 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 writing them to sort of let people know what the characters are about, what makes them tick what the what the you know the the town's like and where they live what the the protagonist is trying to deal with uh what the antagonist is trying to do to you know thwart all that so you can really do a better job and i in the sense that you can give people more to read and more to think about um and you know in in the stories that i write um the evil things that happen to people or the bad things, the dark things are all about what man does to himself or others. So, and then you can inject, like I write typical crime stories, um, but they're infused with elements of the supernatural or something odd in that, in that same vein. So um, the short genre, like in, in my collection is, um, you know, something that I can finish in a reasonable period of time, maybe a few weeks or a month, as opposed to years. Um, there, there are some writers, you know, Stephen King can write 2000 words a day. And, <laughs> um, you know, at the end of a couple of months, he's got one of his things finished. Some are more successful than others, but, um, you know, he has that ability to crank it out like that. And then the novel, you know, the novel is something that is, uh, it's a very long struggle for me in the sense that uh, I, I always go back to my days in art school where the professor would tell me, you have to do a drawing that takes you 50 hours. And in that 50 hours, I don't want to see any deviation in the quality of your work. And that's the <laughs> same thing that happens in writing, where if you're going to write a 70,000, 80,000 word novel, then you better keep the quality of that writing at the same level as it was when you started. And that can be really difficult for someone that's not cranking out novel after novel after novel. So um, yeah, I, it's, I, it's a struggle, but um, obviously you're able to build worlds, you're able to you know, develop personalities and, and, and you know, <laughs> entire towns if you have to do that. And um, so yeah, it's, they're all different, but they all require a different way of thinking. And uh, that's part of the reason I put out Awake because 
I was afraid that if there was a period of, that was too long from one novel to the next that any interested readers I might have developed might go away, you know? So I thought, well, let's get something out there that has some good solid fiction, but will, you know, still stay within the same genre and work that I'm, I'm doing. Yeah, there really is a sense of immediacy these days. Um, people expect your follow-up, you know, within the week, <laughs> basically. <laughs> it's different than it used to be where the anticipation of waiting for an author's novel over a year or so, um, that's just not really, uh, not how people feel nowadays. No, no. And one thing you mentioned is that people want something immediate. It also transpires in... Um, the kind of work that they're willing to read. People want everything brief. They, in fact, James Patterson, which I really don't like his stuff, but he came up with a thing a few years ago called short shots. And they were sort of novels that were written briefly. Like there was only 30 or 40,000 words to these things, huh. but he wanted to make sure that he addressed the audience that had no patience to <laughs> stick around. Yeah. Well, doesn't he <laughs> reportedly have an army of... Uh authors who write as him kind of thing yes yes he does <laughs> I, I have a whole thing of, I won't go into it but I don't really look at that as you know that's a factory of stamping it out so yeah. um yeah so <laughs> great and uh, I think we're running out of time we got oh. two minutes here so did okay. you have another question and uh well you sort of alluded to this already Lou uh but across those uh those different mediums what do you find to be the most challenging uh, or the most frustrating part of the process moving um, again amongst those three mediums? I think the most challenging part is the, is the promotion afterward. It doesn't matter which one you're <laughs> yeah. doing. It's that, you know, the first publisher I, I, I had was Netherworld from, from England. And they basically said, Hey, we're going to put your book out. We're going to do this, but we're not going to be able to, come up with the finances to promote it. And they sent me a lot of information about how to do that promotion, you know, through web and social media and, and that kind of thing. But they were frank about it. And that's how a lot of small publishers are. So the onus is on the author to get out there and, and work your, your, your material. And I find that to be daunting, truthfully. Oh, I can, I can relate. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Graydon is uh, an author as well and an audiobook narrator whom I have worked with many times and I see your posts up there. You know, it's hard to, you know, on Facebook or wherever it is, you know, you want to promote, but you don't want to be that person in quote marks, you know, like. Constantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's a, and it's all different now. So, I mean, like anything else, if you don't evolve, you're gone. So um, you really do need to, have a presence in some fashion in all those places. Yeah, well, speaking of which, uh, perfect segue. Thanks, Lou, for <laughs> giving me that. Uh, where can fans find and follow you online? Well, I have a website, uh, lourera.com. You know, they can go there and find out general information about what I'm doing, work, what I'm working on. And then if you search Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, just search my name you'll it'll pop up my my link to those various sites so basically just like um where you'd expect 
and hope things are. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, thanks so much, Lou. It was really a pleasure to learn more about you and your work. And I'm happy to have you uh, back on the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast anytime. Hey, thanks. I appreciate uh, being on the show. And Graydon, I appreciate you too, uh, your questions and talking about writing and music. Awesome. Likewise, Lou, it was a pleasure. As always, I'm closing the show with an excerpt from one of the Rock and Roll Nightmares books. This is from the 70s edition, and the story is Comfortably Dumb by Leanne Rowe. Things would kick off soon. I actually knew very little about Ether except for the couple of minutes that I had caught up their sound check when I walked in lugging boxes and a handcart. From what I had heard, they were one of those grease paint makeup bands that went for the shock factor. Fake snakes on stage, spiders in cages, promises of gore. I'd seen it all. Singers spitting up blood, band members emerging from coffins, fake limbs thrown into audiences, wannabes. Maybe, but I had seen the greats. Black Sabbath performing war pigs, Ozzy wailing his heart out with the bass rattling my soul all the while. Not to mention the high I was rocking that night. I was there when Alice Cooper, with his boa constrictor, Kachina, draped across his shoulders, played alongside Joe Perry and Ringo with the Hollywood vampires. I was in the crowd, shaking my fist and roaring in unison with the masses, bring out the guillotine. It was going to take a lot of shock to wow me. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at Rock and Roll Nightmares Books. That's B-O-O-K-S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me, and until next time... <laughs>